Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. Listen to the exciting story of the American Community Schools of Athens. Check out what drives all the members of our international community of learners as we create the education of the future. Here's John Papadakis. In the classrooms and corridors of K-12 schools, the voices of the children and the guiding presence of the teachers are the protagonists. Children belong to this environment as it is meant to be. The activity in a classroom, an auditorium, or the athletic facility seems most of the time that it's meant to happen on its own, but there's so much happening behind the scenes. There's so much planning and discussion that is taking place in the offices of the faculty and the administration. So much debate about this teaching practice and that evaluation process and the other methodology. Especially in international schools where ideas and concepts come from all kinds of sources, from local intellectual discussions and from international academic conferences, there is so much to share and get inspiration from. Faculty and specialists arrive from around the world to share their best practices and move to the next level of their academic career. The goal is quite common, but also very unique for its school. It's an advancement and continuous reform of teaching and learning as young minds are shaped to hopefully make this world a better place. Today with us is Dr. Maria Avierinou e-learning consultant and one of the managing editors of the International Schools Journal, a publication of ACS Athens. With an academic career in online teaching and learning and a passion for visual literacy, Dr. Avierinou has been a keystone in the long path of the school towards e-learning innovation. With Dr. Avierinou today, we discuss online teaching and learning as necessary skills for someone starting a career in academia, the practical and pedagogical reasons of the shift to online learning in K-12 education, being prepared to face online learning in higher education, the challenges and skills needed, the trailblazers, the movers and the settlers of the path to online learning, the false assumption that blended learning has to do mostly with technology than pedagogy, being an online native user versus an online learner, and the importance of time management in online learning. You have been a part of this school for a few years now. You were one of the leaders in the transformation of teaching and learning towards the digital domain, which proved to be of great importance with the COVID breakout, when most of the schools had to transition to online classrooms overnight. We were ready as ACS Athens, but we'll talk about this further down our discussion. What do you think prepared you? Was it your studies? Was it your training, your mentality in order to play the role of the e-learning specialist, consultant, professional during this transformation at ACS Athens? When did this take place? Um, Everything you said. So all those different um, reasons that back up my expertise, so to speak, in online learning and blended learning. So my training and my having taught all these years at university level, um, online classes and so on, and also being a researcher in the area. However, I think the most important thing is uh, the fact that I believed in it. So it was my own philosophy. 
uh, and uh, the the vision, I guess, that at some point in at least my life, I would see online learning being right in the center stage of education, not only at universities, but also at the K-12. Was there a point in your university career where online became so prominent and you said, wow, what's that? The the point was right when I was finishing my PhD in England, that was uh, about 20 years ago. And um, I felt that uh, I wasn't ready to fa- to face university teaching with just my PhD and just, okay, and all the, the knowledge I had uh, from my studies. But I also needed um, online teaching um, skills in order to be able to cope with the different demands that we had at the university level at that time. And so um, I think I must have been uh, one of the first people that were trained as a um, first university lecturers uh, that was trained as an online teacher um, with um, the uh, University of London, which also offered the first, uh, as it were, program um, internationally on online teaching and learning in education. So that kind of um, drove my understanding, not just my understanding, but also the the belief that that, well, that was a necessary array of skills that uh, somebody who was uh, going to launch their career academically uh, needed, um, not just in Europe, but also in, in the States uh, that um, I ended up uh, teaching later. Did you see a difference between what was happening in UK and your time in the US? Regarding the digital domain? Yes, um, th- there was a big gap actually between what uh, the UK at the time was promising and delivering um, and what uh, was happening in the US. In the US, um, everything was much more applied. And so, although theory-wise, they were uh, totally advanced uh, with respect to distance education uh, and uh, and so on, uh, they also knew, I guess, from the, the industry that uh, that was a necessary skill that uh, uh, students, especially graduate students, which is my specialization, needed for uh, their careers. The digital domain is quite new, as we know, especially in K-12 education. Mm -hmm. The higher education community has been native, as you discussed before, at operating it uh, for many years. Universities have long been developing platforms, methodologies, mentalities, and have been shifting their teaching and learning paradigm to the virtual class for a few years now. Do you think that through the conditions caused by the pandemic, education made a leap or was it expected that this is where it's going to go? Um, definitely the, the pandemic uh, precipitated the um, kingdom of, uh, of online education in K-12. But yes, it was expected um, for this to happen maybe later. But uh, it was also necessary for a variety of uh, not just practical, but also pedagogical reasons. That was also one of the things that we believed uh, here at ACS, meaning that if we wanted to prepare um, our students as uh, ACS Athens graduates to face successfully their university um, studies, then they also had to know not only how to be an online uh, learner, but also what were their rights and responsibilities um, in terms of uh, that online learning when they went later on in their, at the university and Have college. you heard from uh, students that went to university and they faced yes. the new reality. What was their feedback? So the feedback was that uh, they totally appreciate it. 
the the fact that uh, they were uh, prepared, well prepared by ACS Athens. Uh, so they knew what to expect in terms of uh, their own um, online learning skills, how they perform online, but also, uh, you know, the online time management, for instance, and uh, how to cope with online digital resources and so on and so forth. But also what to expect of uh, online uh, teachers and what were their own uh, responsibilities toward, for instance, meeting deadlines uh, without seeing face-to-face the teacher. So they felt they were very well prepared and uh, they came back uh, happily to report so. Why do you think online time management is so important? (laughs) It is important. I think it's one of the most difficult skills that one uh, acquires uh, when uh, they train uh, online. Uh, The reason being that there are so many different resources in your uh, fingertips that, uh, you know, you get uh, very easily carried away. And uh, you're in a, in a kind of silo, in a world of uh, your own. And uh, unless you're very well trained to kind of uh, limit yourself uh, within a very specific uh, time frame to complete the whatever assignment or whatever you have, you can totally miss deadlines and so on and so forth. Is what we do anyway when we're So this is part of the training then? It is part of the training, yes. Yeah. How easy has it been for teachers and administrators to shift mentalities and operate in this new brave world? What were the challenges you faced as you were offering advice and guidance? As with every change, especially in education, you will have the three groups of uh, people. You have the trailblazers, meaning you have those that uh, will just go ahead and uh, and be with you in exploring uh, happily, you know, the new environment. Then you have the movers, uh, people that uh, you know hesitantly in the in the beginning, but then you know seeing and believing in the vision that you're offering, they will follow you. And then finally, you have the settlers, the, the which is the group that is the most difficult to move, actually. This metaphor, actually, uh, that I just used, uh, is what I also saw here at ACS. It took some time to move the the movers <laughs> over to the digital uh, world uh, with uh, IceWareFlex, and which was our blended learning uh, paradigm, and still is actually. And um, so, what I what I found out, of course, was that uh, there um, the teaching philosophy is uh, very difficult to change. Another thing that's difficult is the wrong assumption that um, online and blended learning have to do with technology mostly than with pedagogy. Once teachers uh, get past the um, this kind of mental block of uh, I can do this with technology, then of course they see that pedagogy is the, the most important thing that uh, and most importantly who they are as teachers inside or outside uh, the classroom, inside the the brick wall or um, behind the screen is essentially what is really important to the students and uh, how they communicate and interact with the students and also how they design their uh, the educational experience are actually the two most important things in uh, online learning as well. And uh, this is what they need to kind of um, make the mental switch to in order to be able to embrace um, online teaching and learning. And, and how about the students, high schoolers or middle schoolers who admittedly are digital natives? Uh, must have faced different kinds of issues. What feedback were you getting from the faculty you worked with back then about the student experience? Okay, all sort of kinds of uh, feedback. Um, First of all, uh, students uh, would uh, like online uh, teaching. They would uh, profess that they knew more in terms of technology than what the teachers knew. 
So they were happy uh, that uh, teachers finally, you know, were kind of uh, coming into the 21st century. But on the other hand, what the problem was uh, with the students was that uh, they knew how to use technology for information and for uh, and for entertainment or uh, infotainment, but uh, didn't know how to respond uh, to online learning platforms as uh, learners. So they had to also be trained on how to become online learners. Uh, that was uh, that was a kind of a major thing. And this is what the majority of uh, teachers would report. And this is where they would be working on with uh, their classes. Mm -hmm. uh, you are one of the experts on Bloom's taxonomy. Okay, mm -hmm. Bloom's taxonomy is the, the switch between understanding knowledge to creating knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the connection of Bloom's taxonomy in designing e-learning and blended learning? What Bloom's taxonomy does uh, for blended learning uh, or vice versa, what blended learning and online learning does for Bloom's taxonomy is that uh, it allows uh, the teachers, it gives uh, the time and the freedom to the teachers uh, to use um, uh, the learning experience for the kind of more sophisticated, higher order Bloom taxonomy skills. Uh, like um, analysis, uh, synthesis, and evaluation and creation, as opposed to just uh, using class time for to break new knowledge, for instance, and to basically work at that kind of low level. How does this happen? It happens because uh, you can use you can use the the flipped uh, classroom model. So you can Which have is briefly. Briefly is that you can have students at home uh, study um, learning uh, digital material that you have already sent them. You can also check online uh, through a kind of uh, very minimal quiz uh, their understanding through uh, you know some questions that uh, you have uh, yourself uh, designed in order to see to what extent the student has underst has understood the um, the learning material. So when they come to class face to face in a kind of blended environment, I mean this is mm -hmm. going to happen. Mm -hmm. Then you will just um, give feedback to the entire class with respect to their questions or misunderstandings of uh, the content, and then you move on to the next level, which is the uh, higher level of uh, Bloom's taxonomy. So in a sense, it's a tool to reach the Bloom's taxonomy uh, goals, the e-learning and the a flipped classroom uh, model. It is, and it facilitates and, and optimizes, as it were, you know, learning experience, um, either online or blended. You are listening to the Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. Our guest today is Dr. Maria Vierinou, e-learning consultant at ACS Athens and one of the managing editors of the International Schools Journal. We are talking with her about bridging K-12 with higher education through the I-squared Flex blended learning reference books. How action research transforms the teaching and learning culture of a school and a passion for visual literacy and architecture. During your capacity as the director of e-learning at ACS Athens, mm. your role was to introduce the digital transformation of teaching and learning to an already innovative school. During that time, you were also one of the editors and co-authors of the Handbook of Research on K-12 Blended and Virtual Learning 
through the I-squared Flex classroom model that came out in 2021. This is the second edition of the I-squared Flex handbook that was first published uh, back in 2016. Um, the handbook is an impressive compilation of 35 chapters authored by 13 international scholars as well as 33 ACS Athens educators and is currently in the library collection of many top universities, including Stanford University. What was the purpose of this book? Why do you think it is important for a K-12 education to share best practices in this manner? First of all, it wasn't, as you mentioned, uh, we also had uh, um, academics, um, scholars from university who um, kind of wrote in the first section of the book, which was the theoretical landscape of K-12 uh, with uh, high, with blended uh, learning and, and online learning. By so doing, we felt uh, that uh, we're kind of uh, bridging uh, the um, the dialogue between uh, the K-12 and, and uh, university produced knowledge. We did that by producing our own knowledge here because all of those uh, th those chapters uh, are based on uh, action research projects that take place here at school. It is important for, for uh, those working in the field of education, technology, and online learning to kind of read what we have to say because it comes directly from the classroom. It is research-based. It also it gives uh, the um, the university very good uh, perspective on what's happening in the field, but it's not just a reflection. It's what people have done through their action research, how they have uh, reached the the data that they are reporting on, what have they learned themselves as practitioners through all this journey, and how all this uh, kind of boils down to helping the students uh, not only with the learning outcomes, but also with uh, their um, social emotional development, because we also have you know, those domains addressed through the, our chapters. I'm trying to understand, uh, would this particular process expand the purpose of a K-12 school by doing so and then document it in a book like this? I assume it does. It does. Um, it gives both uh, the teachers and the students a different way to look at themselves through the lens of action research, which is not a research that somebody else outside, uh, say, in the lab or somebody comes from the outside and performs on us. Mm -hmm. We do it mm -hmm. uh, as a mechanism of um, self-reflection, um, as a mechanism of accountability to ourselves as professionals. And it also shows uh, uh, something else to the students. The students see the faculty here doing action research, therefore modeling, you know, this kind of approach to not just their profession, but to everyday life, because you cannot really be a researcher and really not do, not perform research in the rest of your, uh, in the other areas of your life. Um, so in many ways, it expands um, how we think about our profession and also what is the, um, the impact that we have on the students mm -hmm. uh, by, uh, again, modeling what we do and how we help them through the data that we have collected uh, through our own engagement with action research, uh, with le their, their learning outcomes, but also with uh, other areas of their development. Which brings me to my next point, because ACS <laughs> Athens, as an American international school, uh, receives its academic accreditation through Middle States Association of Colleges and Schools, MSA for short. Although the accreditation takes place every seven years, approximately, the school is on a perpetual cycle of self-evaluation, documenting its practices, developing its community to reach ever higher goals. 
Through this protocol, we are getting accredited by the so-called Sustaining Excellence Protocol, for which we just got accredited again for another seven years. We are required to conduct action research school-wide now, faculty, administration, and staff. It sounds like a daunting task, but putting it simply, we're just setting a purpose for what we do, and we document the results. Is this an accurate way of describing it as one of the research advisors of this process? What are the benefits for the students? First of all, it sounds, and it is a daunting task, I have to say this, um, I don't want in any way to make this uh, sound less uh, important or complicated than it is. Uh, it's uh, When you do this in a university level, um, it's expected and it is, um, you know, nobody is going to kind of bat an eyelid. However, here at the school level, it's not easy to uh, have the entire school, both instructional and non-instructional staff, to engage with action research um, and evaluation research. This is what the non-instructional staff do here, for instance. Someone a few years ago had said that uh, it seems like every seven years we go for a school-wide PhD. <laughs> That is true. <laughs> that is true. It's 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 precisely how you should describe it. Uh, it is a kind of collective effort. Um, reevaluate uh, uh, the, our practices mm -hmm. at um, every level, and um, and and then reflect, collect the data, and then analyze the data, and then and decide on the basis of that analysis um, which is the best way to uh, kind of move forward, continue doing what we do, or switching, uh, or any what ways we should uh, change. And the benefit for the students. The benefit for the student, of course, is uh, as I also mentioned earlier, uh, the students will be taught in. Uh, ways that, uh, first of all, are innovated because research, action research is not just about uh, solving problems, but it's also about um, implementing um, innovative ways of um, addressing uh, various teaching uh, innovations. That, so that's not one thing. And, you know, the students like a kind of novel stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't particularly uh, like kind of the mundane, um, uh, old uh, things day happening. Routines. Day, yes, routines, absolutely. On the other hand, um, any uh, any learning problems uh, that uh, are addressed through action research, for instance, again, uh, it is important that they are solved um, on, uh, based on uh, data and uh, what the literature says, as opposed to, you know, biosmosis. And uh, or by uh, the teacher's own uh, uh, past experience. So uh, yes, the learning benefits uh, are on various levels, but it's also important in terms of uh, the school culture. So if you see that the school is kind of uh, the, the the faculty and and the non-instructional staff are immersed in this um, research activity, which becomes philosophies, it becomes the what someone uh, said, uh, the living theory, so a theory that you live by, and that's your approach to everything that happens. Uh, this is also something that affects the students, and mm -hmm. uh, they, they begin to realize for themselves how important research is for uh, their own lives. And uh, that's not just for their lives, but it's also, uh, you know, personally, but also academically when they move ahead to university, for instance, it's easier for them to deal with uh, research project demands and so on. Recently, you became one of the managing editors of the International Schools Journal, a biannual publication which is an established forum for educators and visionaries of international education since the early 90s. ACS Athens became the publisher 
since 2019, and it's not every day that a K-12 school is also the publisher of a well-respected academic journal. You have extensive experience in managing journals, but I think this undertaking is a little different. How do you personally envision this journal in the years to come? What could its role be in the fast-changing landscape of K-12 international education? And it's not an easy answer. No, it's not an easy answer, of course. Let me go back to say something that uh, will will justify uh, what I'm going to say. So, you know, here we have the incubator. There have been some uh, students uh, with uh, the guidance of their teachers, I think it was high school, who had uh, launched this uh, Space CS project and they went uh, with terrific kind of results and uh, with lots of accolades uh, internationally about what it was that we achieved. Launching uh, Uh, experiments to space. Yes. Okay. And uh, so I remember Dr. Carabellas, who was one of the key faculty involved in this project as mentor and so on, uh, he came and he said, you know what, we really need to be able to share the, this with the world um, and himself uh, himself as an accomplished researcher um, and, and well-published too. He wanted to find a venue uh, where he could write, uh, co-author about this, uh, this experiment and the results with his students. And uh, It took, I don't know, at least six months to a year to be able to identify a publication venue that would accept uh, such a publication. And of course, we couldn't find anything. Just because it was a K-12 just because Just because it was a K-12 project. It was a project where the students uh, took the lead. It wasn't uh, about reporting uh, on an experiment, but it was It was also, they would report about the experiment, of, of course, but they would also report about the journey. They would report how this happened. The students also would report what they learned through the process and not just on the kind of uh, mm-hmm. knowledge domain, but mm-hmm. also um, reflectively, you know, as students, as, uh, you know, the skills they would uh, develop through this and the collaboration with their mentors and all the rest. And there wasn't any journal that, w- that would take something like that. We was too advanced for the kind of old uh, scholarly to kind of passe journals for this kind of thing. And uh, this is when uh, it dawned on me that uh, the ISJ is very well situated to play such role, to, uh, to, to provide a forum to students who would like to be reporting from international schools who would like to be reporting on the whatever projects they do. But uh, this report is not just uh, the outcome of the project, but also all the reflection that goes with uh, with uh, the participation in the process, mm-hmm. the co-authoring with their uh, teachers. So that's uh, one of the things that definitely, one of the roles that definitely the ISJ can play in the future is this, provide such a forum. Um, at the same time, uh, it can provide a forum for uh, the for co-authorships between the university level and uh, the K-12 level, again, to demonstrate that uh, these two big areas of education can uh, work and uh, uh, and co-produce knowledge um, hand in hand. And uh, finally, it can give a word to the international schools, um, administrators and so on, who um, uh, have a lot of a wealth of uh, experience and a lot to say in the area of interna- in international education at the different uh, sections of it and so on. I feel that uh, ISJ is well situated to be able to uh, kind of tackle all those three goals that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. If you had to publish your own journal... What would it be about? 
I mean, do you feel there are topics worth exploring at that level or everything has been taken care of? I am publishing my own journal. <laughs> okay, tell us about it. It is not actually my own journal, but I am an editor. I've been the editor for the International Visual okay, don't Literacy. Don't ask the question. I want to know what you would publish. Uh, okay, it would be about visual literacy <laughs> okay. still because that's my passion in life. Um, and however, the way that I would have liked to do this, uh, it would have been a kind of much more uh, sophisticated multimedia um, based uh, journal, not just uh, the online, but uh, you know, with a kind of uh, text uh, mm -hmm. and pictures, uh, but uh, uh, other things as well that had to do, for instance, with online installations mm -hmm. and things that uh, both uh, researchers and uh, practitioners in the area of uh, the visual arts, for instance, um, visual communication and in general visual literacy uh, deal with. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is what exactly I would have liked to do, but of course, uh, scholarly work at this point uh, is only either print or online, but just text and still pictures. Mm -hmm. Well, the following is not a trick question if you don't want it to be. What part of your activities excite you and what part makes you worry? Okay, what makes me worry, <laughs> I'll start with that, is that I spend too much time online. Um, I guess that's my routine and I don't realize how much time I spend online. And this is going back to online time management uh, that I've been trained to do well. However, uh, I see that my life in whatever I do is really uh, revolves around the, the computer, which is really worrying for health <laughs> and mental health too. Uh, what excites me is uh, to be able to see, especially here at ACS, what research does immediately as a kind of a result of uh, its application. So it's not uh, something that, uh, for instance, um, uh, I used to lack when I, I taught at the university level. I would teach the, my my students, uh, my graduate students, how to do action research, for instance, and then they would just go off their ways and I would never know whether they followed or not uh, what we had uh, done in class. And now here, you see that um, you're, you continue to be part of the process all, every step in the way from the proposals to the data collection to the analysis and so on. And then you see also how the students are involved, their students in the in the classroom and uh, what are the different, uh, what, what's the different impact, for instance, that uh, action research interventions uh, have on students and mm -hmm. uh, uh, the different subject areas. So thinking back to your studies or professional activities or books you have read, is there a person who affected you in a profound way? Who would you consider a mentor figure? Um, I think I have many. Yes, I have many for the different um, areas of uh, my professional development. I have those that have uh, affected me in a positive way and those, of course, that have affected me um, in a negative way, which means that uh, I don't want to become <laughs> the way, for instance, that they were with me when I was in their classrooms. As a major figure, yes, I have a person who is, uh, he is still my collaborator. Uh, he is a Swedish professor, now retired. Uh, he's uh, 82 this year. He's still working with me. He's still producing. He's still co-authoring and he's still researching. Um, and every week he will just go on ResearchGate. 
to be able to to say that yes, uh, I have again revised my latest uh, kind of uh, book and whatever. So uh, he's a, an example of lifelong learner. And, Does he have uh, a difficult name or? Yes, <laughs> no, it's easy. It's Rune Peterson. Okay. He lives in Stockholm, and uh, he's is uh, very easy, but uh, to pronounce. However, this is the person. This is the kind of academic that um, I want to be when I grow up, like Rune. So I really hope that uh, by the, the age that uh, hopefully I have uh, reached uh, 80 years old, I have not lost my interest in my subject uh, or my kind of mission to share what I know with the world. So you want to continue learning? Learning and uh, trying to make a difference through sharing my learning with others. Uh, you have a variety of concentrations in your academic studies that include Byzantine and Greek studies, online learning with a PhD in educational psychology and technology from Bath University. Knowing what you know today, uh, if you had the chance, would you still choose those areas for studies or would you like to get into something different? No, I will still choose those uh, areas for studies, uh, plus architecture. <laughs> I am a visual learner. Um, I enjoy very much uh, the visual world in whatever shape or size and so on, uh, depending on the different domains. You can see visuals penetrating actually every every domain of uh, everyday life. Uh, no, I wouldn't have changed um, a thing. Maybe if uh, teachers, when uh, I was at school, had told me that I had to choose career Career based on what I, I enjoy in my free time, as opposed to what I'm good at academically, that would have uh, brought me earlier to the world of visuals. Uh, and I wouldn't have gone through literature. However, uh, literature is also a very big part of uh, what I am as a professional. It was foundational uh, for me as well to go through my studies. Um, through Byzantine and modern Greek literature. But yes, uh, I would have liked to kind of be introduced to the world of visuals and educational technology earlier. Dr. Avierinu, thank you so much for this discussion. It has been very interesting, at least. Thank you for having me and for your interesting questions. You are listening to the Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. Make sure you subscribe to the Owlcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. This has been a production of the ACS Athens Media Studio.